welcome everyone to Two Pills Podcast. I am so excited today about our guest, who is Dr. Vanessa Holtgrave. So Dr. Holtgrave is a professor of clinical and forensic psychology. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California. She has extensive experience in psychological assessment and diagnosis. She is so cool that she works closely with psychiatric medical professions as part of a forensic team. She provides consultations and coordinates patient care in a psychiatric setting. And over the years, she's worked within the prison system, juvenile detention facilities, and within community mental health. So for those of you who don't know, I am a huge true crime fan, and so is she, apparently. And so I am so excited to talk to her because I actually connected with Dr. Holgrave through um, LinkedIn after hearing her on another podcast. So, so excited that you are up for an interview. So thank you so much. Yeah, I am beyond excited to be talking to you today. I know we've been um, in communication and it's just, like I had said, I'm just a huge fan of podcasts and I'm just um, really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, just to get started, can you just tell us about yourself and maybe your teaching style? Yeah, so... Um, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist, um, and my specialty is more so in forensics, mm-hmm. um, but in the teaching realm, I teach mostly clinical courses. So okay. what that means is that are kind of the non-therapeutic courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my students would certainly vouch for the fact that I do not like teaching therapeutic courses. I think there's <laughs> many professionals out there who just love it and they have a passion for it and students can really tell when you are just not excited about it and <laughs> they'll be like Dr. Holker are you gonna um, be teaching you know this class and this class and I'm like you know how I feel about those classes <laughs> um, therapy is just not my thing I really like um clinical courses and so that would really be more of the biopsychology mm-hmm. neuropsychology realm um psychopathology diagnosis I think that's what everybody really likes is um oh sure yeah and I'm always like now don't diagnose yourself (laughs) of course we're all doing that and I'm like and then this slide is me (laughs) (laughs) well I I think um, they're of that perfect age too right so like when you have them in college is often at least my understanding is when a lot of these diagnoses set in so like you said they're all certainly looking around at each other and thinking about what they may have or what they individually may have yeah, they're like, John over here has social anxiety, <laughs> and I'm like, you guys. <laughs> so, um, no, they're just, they're truly funny, and um, I think it's more interesting. It's really hard to teach courses that are, um, like, I really like research methods, because mm-hmm. research is, you know, the basis of all of our um, fields that we work in, and without research, it's, where would we be today? And they just do not have that same passion. I can see, like, the <laughs> And I'm like, please don't give me research methods this term. Um, but yeah, so the clinical courses are really what, what I have a passion for teaching. And can you explain, just because I don't know, and I'm sure maybe other people don't know, the difference between clinical and forensic psychology? So that's a great question. A lot of times what I hear is like, oh, that's like CSI. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm in no way credentialed enough and probably intelligent enough to have some sort of chemistry degree or whatever it is that they those professionals have to collect forensic evidence not the same so forensic psychology is really I think the most basic way to explain it is like the intersection of 
of mental health um, in a broad sense and the legal system. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and there's many branches. I I always tell my students to kind of just think of it like a tree. Like, you know, the the tree in itself is forensic psychology, but, you know, a branch could be police psychology Hmm. or we have correctional psychology. And then we have, um, you know, those who work in the court systems, they can do expert witness, Mm -hmm. um, testimony. There's just so many different areas um, within just forensic psychology and then clinical psychology um, you know you'd be working more in the community where um, you might be working with individuals with severe and persistent mental illness but then they cross over where I might be working with individuals with severe and persistent mental illness in a correctional setting oh sure yeah so so they hold hands but it's certainly not like CSI and not that cool (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is what everyone thinks about with forensic psychology, for sure. I know. Like, the majority of, of sitting in court can be very boring. <laughs> <laughs> so along those lines, um, what is your favorite or one of your favorite parts about your job? Um, well, it, it really depends on which job I'm talking about. If I'm talking about working in the field, um, which, is, which is working in my field of um, clinical or forensic psychology or working in, in teaching. Um, but I really love working with other professionals. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on the forensic team, we work with psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners. We work with um, public defenders. We work with judges and case managers and all different professionals. And it's nice to be able to bounce ideas off of each other mm-hmm. in a respectful way. Um, versus where, you know, you might have more of that competition where it's not about, you know, who's right or wrong with this diagnosis or this, you know, way of thinking, but more so like, how do we get this person help so they stay out of the justice system? Sure. I really like getting to work with other professionals first. Not that I don't love working with psychologists, I do. Yeah. Um, But, you know, if I can get the opportunity to work with nurses and um, psychiatrists and case managers and all of the, and especially attorneys, um, mm-hmm. then, then that's what I really like to see because they are those different professions. Absolutely. So I know in pharmacy education and in some other areas of health science education, there's a big push now for interprofessional education. And so, you know, I know for us, we're really starting, we're starting this year at orientation and getting students into the idea that you're going to be part of a team in any area of healthcare that you go into. Is that a focus in psychology education or is there emphasis on that? That's a great question. I think there's more of a push um, in the university that I work for right now. We're talking about interdisciplinary teaching. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you would take um, doctors of psychology and you would have them teaching in the doctor of nursing program, which I think is really exciting um, because we are just teaching psychology. You know, we're certainly not pretending to be nurses or sure. have, have that wealth of information that they have, but as far as just the psychology, aspect of that which you know as you know um there's a lot of our same patients that end up in emergency departments oh yeah right and so having that sort of interdisciplinary approach i think is probably the best means of patient care Mm -hmm. when we're looking at let's have those professionals come in and teach us about this let's have psychologists teach us about um suicide risk assessment and the emergency department or um, you know, what does it look like when a patient has this type of diagnosis versus this type of diagnosis? And then we have medical professionals teaching us, what does it look like when it's a medical illness and it's mimicking 
Um, oh, sure. Sort of fetal pathology, right? And we have to know because in the end, it's all about that patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And so how um, do you think most of your students get interested in this field? Or how did you get interested in this field? Um, I actually, you know, was sort of directionless when I went into undergrad. I think like a lot of people. And I really, truly wasn't very good in chemistry. So I think a lot of the things that I wanted to do um, had that chemistry component. So I really admire um, people in those professions that were able to get through chemistry. And I was like, what is the science that I'm interested in um, that doesn't require a lot of chemistry, but something that I can be passionate about and I really wanted to work more towards neuropsychology. And then I sort of ended up in forensic psychology by working in a prison system. That's great. Yeah, but I think for a lot of students, it's like the great thing about having students is I always have them introduce themselves and why do you want to work in psychology and, yeah. and in medicine. And they might say, you know, I want to work with kids who are in the foster care system because they have some sort of relationship to that. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, like, I have a lot of male um, Hispanic students who, and there's a big need for that. Mm-hmm. Where they want to work more specifically with the male population, male students, and then they have that bilingual component, which is um, so vital, especially in California. Sure. And, um, you know, just really asking them, like, you know, why are they here? What do they want to learn about? And it, they always have some sort of unique story, what, mm-hmm. what brought them to our field. That's great. And so when did you know, so you mentioned how you got into kind of forensic psychology, but when did you know that you wanted to teach? Um, that's such a great question. I think it's like, and you can probably relate where you're like, okay, I'm done with school and it <laughs> yeah. took me 12 years. And then you kind of get to that, well, like, this can't just be the end right but then you know you have this PhD and um, you're like I really want to kind of challenge myself to do something more mm-hmm. and um, one of my great friends she she got into um, teaching at the university and she's like well we really need somebody to be able to teach clinical assessment um, so psychological assessment and in my mind I'm like why isn't everybody fighting for this class <laughs> And she's like, they just don't. And all the courses that I could have ever wanted to teach were the ones that the um, professionals who are those amazing faculty that love teaching therapy, that they they didn't want to teach these more clinical courses. Hmm. And um, I was like, yeah, I can can certainly give it a shot and Mm -hmm. see if that's sort of what I've been wanting to, to do recently to enrich myself. And I just loved it so much. That's awesome. So what is an effective teaching strategy that you've implemented and then maybe one that wasn't as effective? (laughs) Then that's such a good question. I think for me working in psychology, the most important thing for students, and I hear this from students a lot with their feedback, is having what what looks like it may be a real life case. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, something that's de-identified, but these clinical cases that they can look at and see, oh, this is... This is something real that you can kind of either relate to or it looks the most like what they would try to see in the field, right? Mm -hmm. And where it's like, how do we transfer what we're learning to real life um, practitioner? And with that, it's it's really those case studies and they always ask for more. And I'm like, I give you multiple (laughs) studies, you know, how many more? And they just love them. And I love them too, because they really are, you know, uh, a learning experience where what we see on television as far as schizophrenia 
um, and, and a lot of those other diagnoses that are really in the media, what do those actually look like? Sure. And, um, you know, and it's not the same in the movies. And um, it really gives them a chance to sort of have that first learning experience as a practitioner, but without having real clients there. It's part of that learning process. And, and I think it's good because it gives them um, a chance to improve their own learning and performance in a way that's still in the classroom. And it's highly adaptable. Um, and it gives them a lot of problem-based uh, learning and mm-hmm. solving, which I really like because it's like, okay, you're on the right track, but have you looked at, um, you know, X, Y, and Z? And you're using those analytical skills, and they just—I love hearing the kind of group breakouts that they get. Oh into yeah. No, it's very clearly. <laughs> so I think the most um, fun and I think effective is those um, clinical cases that they get to talk about. Um, I think the least effective teaching strategy would be, and as you know, these students have different learning styles, Mm -hmm. is to use just one strategy. So I don't like to just do presentations, and I don't like to just talk the whole time. I like Mm -hmm. to have, um, like I said, maybe group breakouts where they can talk about things, like to have visual content. Um, maybe they're they're more of a, a visual learner. They're more of an auditory learner. And also, I think, um, you know, what is an effective teaching style if not one that uses all the different types of strategies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so going kind of multimodal with your approach. I think that's great. And I really like what you mentioned about cases because we certainly do patient cases too, but often pharmacy can be – pretty or at least pharmacotherapy can be pretty algorithmic I mean certainly as far as like what we're teaching students first line and of course there's tons of gray area but I would think in your field there's even more gray area so as far as when they're assessing patients I mean every individual is unique so it is and it's like well did you rule out medical conditions did you rule out you know um, personality features and I think we have a lot of these kind of ongoing micro failings as we learn to be a better Uh, professor and lecturer Um, but I think really just failing to recognize that students have different learning styles and abilities myself included Mm -hmm. Um, and really kind of falling into that trap where you're assuming that this suboptimal performance is due to a lack of effort rather than a lack of ability yeah where you know we spend a long time in school before we even get to that point where we are now teaching students and you know, one of the mistakes that I made even just recently was assuming they know how to do a PowerPoint. And mm. I had this one student who um, said, you know, thank you so much for this experience. This is my first PowerPoint ever. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, <laughs> wow. I didn't even do that. And it was excellent, of course. But I think, you know, what what if it hadn't been to the standards that I was expecting, I think I wouldn't have really considered the fact that that was the very first PowerPoint ever that this student made. And I think you know, I got to be a part of that learning experience, but really falling into that trap where you're assuming they they should know something that they haven't possibly learned yet. Yeah. Or that it's due to a lack of effort. I think that that's, that's a really narrow way of approaching students. I agree. Um, I think that's great. So if you had somebody who came up to you who was maybe just starting or even on your first day, what insight about being a faculty member do you have now that you wish you had then or that you would tell them? Um, I think definitely invest in Red Bulls, especially <laughs> <in your classes. laughs> True. Um, 
but really that being a professor does not have to be so dichotomous, I think. And I, I speak to a lot of my friends who I absolutely respect as faculty members, and they'll say, you know, um, you know, how do I get, you know, these students to have a you know, more positive reviews? Like we look at student reviews a lot mm-hmm. and a more positive experience. And they'll say, well, maybe I think I'm too harsh in grading. And I'm like, no, you can have, you can have high standards. Sure. For your but you also have to be very supportive and provide them opportunities for success. So maybe you didn't do well in this assignment, but I can give you another opportunity to get those points back. I mean, you're doing the work. Right. And also make it fun. I mean, I bring candy to classes. Um, you know, I had a student who brought a puppy and I was like, you can bring this puppy anytime you want. <laughs> That's or, awesome. Yeah, just anything to kind of facilitate learning, but you don't have to have that be at the sake of standards as well. I I do see a lot of that dichotomous thinking where I either have to be strict with my learning style and my grading and have these standards, but I also, um, you know, can be supportive Mm -hmm. and I can give them those opportunities because in the end, it's really for their success. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, and it's not for writing style per se or content it's for the learning experience um so I think that you know and also I wish somebody would have told me the lectures don't have to be perfect (laughs) that's a good one yeah oh my gosh I can't even tell you I probably spent like 20 or 30 hours making lectures and um you know I'd be like well you know what if we run out of time and I also want to have these extra learning experiences and I want to suggest books and I want to put really funny you know photos but that aren't offensive and you (laughs) Oh, you have to think through it. I remember one time I put up a like GIF or GIF, however you say it, and I thought it was hilarious and it was crickets in the classroom. And I was like, skip, skip, skip. Just like get through that as fast as you can, you know? Yeah, and then you're like, who put this on here? Yeah, I don't know. It just showed up. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you have any, you mentioned books, so do you have any like books or resources or podcasts that you would recommend to somebody either starting off their career in academia or currently in their career? Oh my gosh, in academia. So it's hard to say because I listen to a lot of podcasts that are not related to, uh, well, they're related to my field of forensic psychology. (laughs) (laughs) They're not the types of books and podcasts that I would recommend to people who are sensitive to that kind of content. Uh-huh. Like, I really truly believe that Amazon has maybe flagged me for some kind of book list. <laughs> uh, it really depends. Like, if you're if you're interested in in teaching and talking about police psychology, there's so many books on that and um, forensic psychology. But as far as podcasts, there's a lot of ones that I think are broader. Where um, I think it's called Things You Should Know. Podcast. Oh yeah, I actually really like that one. It's very psychology based. Yeah, yeah. But then they'll talk about things like birth control or yeah. whatever else that you would want to know. And um, I think it's like whatever you're wanting to learn about, whether it's forensic psychology or it's medication. Then having that kind of ongoing enrichment, where mm-hmm. I'll challenge myself, like 
I want to read a book that's not one that's assigned to me as a faculty member mm-hmm. to teach, but one that's outside of that. And then I also want to listen to podcasts that are in my own field and in other fields as well. Sure. To kind of just continue my own learning experience with that. But I think just find find whatever interests you. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I'm beyond excited that you're doing a podcast. And especially for those that work in the health and sciences professions, I don't think that there's enough of those podcasts out there. If you ask me, and I have just lists of podcasts, to to name one that's really targeted for those professions, I really couldn't name one. And that's honestly where this came from is because I was I wanted a podcast that I would listen to and I have a ton of clinical update ones because I listen to a lot of medical ones so like Medscape you know certain ones and things like that but specifically in teaching I I couldn't really find anything so I'm like you I love podcasts I'm always on the look for what's new um, and stuff so um, yeah I I would agree though I think most of the ones in health sciences are very clinical heavy the ones I listen to so right and it, it gets the discussion going about teaching because otherwise you just have your you have your community of friends and colleagues who are faculty members and you know we're able to to dialogue about you know what's not working in this scenario or what's worked for you in the past and I think it's amazing getting a community together that that can be able to talk about those types of experiences and what helps them and what doesn't help them and also to know that other people have things that haven't worked for them. Exactly. Yeah. That have or have not. And, um, you know, I think what is so exciting to me is that it's not just one field either because all of our students ultimately are so similar. I think in health sciences education, they're all competitive. They're all high achievers. And they – need to learn practical information and they need to know a ton of it and so I think all of those things we all have in common um, as far as the students that we teach Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and we do get that kind of similar student base where it's like okay I can sense the anxiety going on in this now or this conversation I'm having with you and I really would love to just do like a 10 minute mindfulness or something oh totally so it's like okay everybody needs to de-stress now for just like 10 minutes that's so smart especially like if it was you know I don't know if we could do it before like a final exam because they're all cramming until the last 30 seconds before you tell them to put your notes away you know but if they could just like get their minds in it for a second that would be really great yeah I like to send my students links for mindfulness um and and different resources to be able to try to de-stress with that because they do have those those big exams or maybe like um, comprehensive exams or um, one of those types of end of your program um, I don't know I guess we call it comprehensive exams yeah exactly <laughs> yeah absolutely so high stress and you're like am I going to be able to verbalize everything that I know and everything that I've learned in a cohesive way to a bunch of faculty members and um, yeah, we used to ask our professors being in psychology program to do mindfulness first, and they're like, oh, again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is unique. I don't think every other health science program, uh, their students request mindfulness. So I love that you guys do that. That's I know. awesome. We'll just have to start going into, uh, you know, the other professions and be like, okay, we're going to provide this service. Oh, you. that would be so great. <laughs> I know. We'll get it going. Yes, we'll- please. So what have you learned from a student or a patient that you've worked with? Um, I mean, gosh, there's just 
so many things. And I think it's just to always remember that every person's unique mm-hmm. and they, it sounds so cliche, but it's like a unique experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, one of the interactions that I don't like to hear is somebody saying, Oh, I've been through a similar situation or, um, you know, I know somebody who's gone through this or has, you know, done something like this. It's like, well, good for you because that person's <laughs> absolutely the same way and to just remember that that person's unique to have their own coping skills Mm -hmm. or lack of coping skills they have their own support system or lack of support system and to just remember that you know what what they are going through is an experience that you um, have not gone through as your own unique individual and to really remember you know just like with students saying things as simple as like I didn't know how to make a PowerPoint presentation, or um, I don't know what to do when I am stressed out. Because mm-hmm. uh, a, a thing I do hear a lot is, well, I would have done it in this situation. It's like, but you are a different person. <laughs> so I, I think that really uh, patients and um, clients and, and students on a daily basis really humble me and remind me to um, really be sensitive to the fact that they have their own experiences. I think that's really great, and I haven't heard that before because I, I know, you know, when I think about my experience in pharmacy school, it was relatively straightforward. I mean, I had relationships. I was involved in organizations, but generally, life was pretty good in pharmacy school, and so I'm always amazed when I hear about the challenges that our students are dealing with, whether it's familial or with their, um, you know, significant other or with addictions or just whatever it is. And so it always opens my mind, my mind that they're able to balance school with everything else going on in their personal lives. Just like you said, these unique experiences. Oh, yeah. They're just like a bunch of superheroes. Like, they can do <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even have kids when I was going to <laughs> No, exactly. You know, you're doing all of this. I couldn't even imagine. And that's where we as, um, you know, scholar practitioners and uh, as professors need to remember that, um, you know, they're coming from a very different situation and they need different supports or different levels of support. And it's not being a needy student. It's not... Um, that they're not putting in an effort or they're, um, you know, being too abrasive with their approach, that they really need that other support. Um, like I said, I couldn't imagine, you know, going through getting a doctorate with, with having children. <laughs> yeah, and some of them have kids and this long commute and a job. I'm just like, I don't know how you guys do it. It's amazing. Oh, I know. That's why I started bringing candy because I'm like, you look so tired. <laughs> By the time they get to class, I'm like, you spend like a 10-hour shift. And also went and got your children and did, you know, God knows what else before you even got here. So exactly. I would just, yeah, I'm like, I will start making food, whatever you guys need. Absolutely. So who inspires you or where do you get your best ideas? My best, I think it's from my community of friends. And um, I talk to my mom a lot. She's an emergency um, department nurse. Ooh, that's cool. I, I just have the utmost respect for nurses. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it's it's a job I could never do. And they they truly are that first line of lifesavers. And she has um, very unique perspectives. You know, I'll talk about mental health, and it, of course, crosses into her profession. And, you know, we'll talk about the challenges with that. But my closest friends are 
psychologist and we have a very respectful way of dialoguing with each other where maybe you had a different experience with this person but they have the same diagnosis but they're different people Mm -hmm. and really just be able to bounce ideas off of each other and grow Um, that consultation component I think um, with other professionals not just in your field but in closely related fields absolutely Right. To just, I love having those types of educational discussions where, you know, it's not going to end in conflict if one person has a a different approach to something where it's like, okay, well, I never really thought about doing that. I'm going to try this approach instead. Um, But just to have that support system is really valuable. I completely agree. I think that's great. And like you said, it doesn't come from something I feel like the people you surround yourself with usually aren't going to say, well, you should have done it that way or whatever. It's a way that you could consider approaching a different situation um, or a situation another time with that approach that they're using. And it could be even more effective. So I completely agree. It just helps you grow as a professional. Exactly. And I think that you have to have that mature mindset to be able to approach it from this is an ongoing learning experience and to go, okay, there, there are multiple ways of approaching a situation, especially in mental health, um, where I could try this. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But at least I tried this approach or um, this teaching method. And it's something that I didn't have in my own toolbox before that. And just to be able to dialogue, you know, about things in your field and in other fields with professionals and just grow in that way, I think it's the most interesting part of my day. Yeah, I think that's great. And speaking of having a tool in your toolbox, so I know in with my family medicine residents, I've done a little bit of mindfulness. But for those of us who teach in fields outside of psychology, how could we insert a little bit of mindfulness for our students or even for our faculty? Do you have any recommendations? Gosh, I think we really even do it without knowing. And mm-hmm. it's all about staying in the moment. And, um, you know, I myself feel like um, I get away from myself. Mm-hmm. With things where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this coming up and this deadline, and I need to do this and add this on, and it can create a lot of anxiety just from going so far in the future with your thinking. So I'll stop and be like, okay, I will maybe um, go to the beach and just focus on like, how does the air smell and mm-hmm. what are the sounds that I'm hearing, and try to stay in the moment because. I'm very guilty of getting relaxing massages and spending the whole massage thinking about, like, what do I need to do? Thinking, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're like, okay, I'm done. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wasted that whole time. (laughs) It's supposed to be for self-care. So even the most self-care that thing that you could think of, which would be like getting a massage or doing something like that for yourself, I I was guilty of chronically wasting that time by not staying in the moment and really focusing on, like, what was going on then and not – what, what's going on in the future? What do I need to do? Yeah, I think that's great, trying to quiet down your thoughts a little bit. Um, yeah. And so my last question for you, so what would be your overall prescription for life, success, happiness, whether in academia or just in general? For me, I think it's making the time, which is possible. I've, I've worked like 80 hours a week before. Or making time for those people in your life Um, or if you don't have a lot of people in your life for yourself and, um, you know, I would say, okay, I'm not going to pick up my laptop. I'm not going to, it sounds kind of like an anti-resolution, right? Like I'm going to not not work from home and I'm going to go hiking with my friends this weekend and I'm going to make this time. 
um, instead of spending so long making lectures or so long working on these clinical evaluations. And really think for happiness, it's like if I were to describe how my day made me happy, it would be in those interactions. Like my friends and I went hiking or we went kayaking or we got to try this new restaurant and um, just having those little moments in your day and in your life with those people are kind of what keep me sane mm-hmm. anyway. And because I try to think of, well, what if I didn't have a, a tomorrow? Then yeah. I spent all day. I spent all day today working and doing nothing else. I think that's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>